All right then, guys. Uh, welcome to Do Good Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Watson, and I've got a great guest lined up for you today. His name is Daniel Pinchbeck. He's the author of numerous books, including Breaking Over from the Head, and his most recent one, How Soon Is Now. His essays and articles have been featured in the New York Times and the Rolling Stones, just to name a few, where Daniel, Daniel talks candidly about how we need to move to a new stage of awareness, one that is based on cooperation over competition to help us make the necessary shift to overcome the global challenges we face right now. So firstly, Daniel, really appreciate you uh, taking your time to chat with me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. Um, so I've been um, really delving into you recently, and um, you've got quite a, an unorthodox sort of like journey and approach to actually becoming a writer and, you know, an author. So I'd like to kind of like wind it back a little bit to beginning, just so the listeners can get a, an understanding of your kind of your journey that you've gone on and, and how it's evolved. So yeah, I grew up in a um, you know kind of artistic home. Uh, my father was a painter, and my mother was a uh, author and a book editor. Um, she actually wrote a number of books, including a memoir called Minor Characters. Um, so yeah, I always wanted to be a writer. I grew up in New York City. Um, I didn't like college. I dropped out. I worked in magazines. Um, then in my late twenties, I had a kind of an existential crisis. And I remembered a handful of psychedelic experiences that I'd had in college. And I decided to make an exploration of them um, as a journalist. And I was writing for magazines like Esquire and the New York Times and so on. So I got assignments. I worked for the Village Voice about ayahuasca. Then I ended up um, going to West Africa for a magazine called uh, Vibe and taking uh, Iboga and a weedy initiation ceremony. Um, and then I ended up having a lot of other adventures, wrote about Burning Man for the Rolling Stone magazine uh, in 2000, I guess. And I ended up uh, writing a first book, Breaking Open the Head, that was about um, psychedelic shamanism. And um, that book really chronicled my own uh, shift in my way of understanding the world, because uh, I had a lot of psychic and paranormal experiences. Um, so I began to really understand that shamanism had a validity to it, that there were these other levels of the psyche that shamans talk about. And um, that made me aware that we were pressing you know, kind of indigenous knowledge and their you know, wisdom, the spiritual beliefs. And then I became very interested in the fact that a lot of indigenous cultures and, and even Western cultures have a pathetic understanding of the time that we're in now. It's a time of tremendous transformation. The Maya had a calendar that kind of completed a great cycle over 5,000 years in 2012, in the fourth world, in the fifth world. Well, anyway, so um, the 2012 book um, was looking at take, taking seriously the knowledge of indigenous cultures like the Maya and the Hopi and the Aztecs that were in a time of prophetic transformation, and then trying to understand that from a number of different angles. Um, and yeah, I don't know what else you want me to tell, tell you about my past, but 2017, I wrote How Soon Is Now, most recently, a book called When Plants Dream, that is about ayahuasca, that I wrote with an anthropologist. That sounds like a really fascinating journey you've gone on, and it's interesting some of the stuff you're talking about, like with the Mayan calendar and prophecies and stuff, and then and now we're chatting in the middle of 2020, where no one could have forecast what's sort of gone on, particularly in the last six months. And I wonder what your perspective was in that, and is if this is kind of like, this is happening now to sort of accelerate the shift to, you know, the thing that you're talking about was, you know, this rapid change that we're seeking? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think that it's, uh, proved, it's proving my uh, hypothesis. I and mean, I was never fixated on the date 2012 
uh, it was more kind of recognizing that these cultures had recognized from a long time ago that you know, around this time there would be this intense, profound planetary transformation of consciousness and of society and so on. And um, I was already very concerned, even going back to breaking up in the head, that we were facing an ecological emergency, but we weren't really facing it. We weren't really dealing with what it meant or the consequences of it. And um, you know, the, the, the virus is another outgrowth of this ecological catastrophe that we're unleashing. You, from all the stuff that you talk about doing the shamanism and the psychedelics and stuff, kind of having these visions, psychic visions and things like that, are you very kind of optimistic that we're going to kind of break it through what almost feels like the eye of a needle that we've got to go through and kind of move on through? Um, I'm, I don't know if I'm optimistic. I mean, um, the book How Soon Is Now was an effort to um, kind of um, put together a systemic approach to what we would have to do on a, on a planetary species level to deal with the ecological emergency. Um, and I looked at it in you know, different kind of the three main areas being kind of how we would have to shift our technical systems or you know, technical infrastructure from industry to agriculture to energy production to waste management. We would have to change our social systems so that we could make those technical changes. And lastly, how we would have to you know, kind of um, influence the global consciousness of humanity so that we could make these changes together. And um, you know, I was aware that we only had a short period of time to bring about such a change. And in the years since that book came out, which is now three years, we don't, we don't seem like we're making a change in that way. So um, because it's quite a radical shift, I don't, I don't think we can continue capitalism as usual. You know, if we want to protect the lives of most people on the planet, you know, uh, I mean, at the moment it feels that the um, kind of ruling elites um, are, have made a decision that um, you know that, that they can sacrifice you know many many people's futures in order to maintain uh, control of uh, resources and capital for themselves. Uh, at least that's that's how the current um, kind of program seems to be going. You know, um, but uh, the thing that I don't understand from their perspective is you know the I mean the, the legitimate prospect of extinction as a species is is, is really uh, close at hand. Uh, if we break through two degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels, we could easily go to three, four, five degrees with all these feedback loops that get engaged. And then really most of the planet becomes uninhabitable. And um, this could happen much faster than you know, most predictions uh, tell us, because even the projections of bodies like the you know, um, scientists in the IPCC report you know, are very conservative. And we're now seeing some papers like uh, Jamie Bendel's paper, Deep Adaptation, and uh, obviously Extinction Rebellion, you know, citing a lot of sources that are really saying that we're actually already on the cusp of bringing about our own extinction. And we would, we would really need a radical shift in direction to, to prevent that. So I don't necessarily see that happening. So, um, you know, I, I'm also open to more like esoteric and occult ideas because I've had many direct experiences of these other levels of reality. You know, in some, in some way, you know, this is a cosmic play, you know, an illusion, a game, you know, consciousness exploring its great capacities. And, and maybe, you know, this, this is the end of the game that we play in this, in this human form, you know. Yeah, it definitely seems like, like you say, you know, we're hearing there's a lot of 
I, 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 one thing I take to think about is like I see like Extinction Rebellion and I see the youth that are rising up and they're doing the climate climate strikes and the school strikes and all this stuff because they're obviously really you know they they're angry really with the way corporations have taken this path and particularly the, like the economic and I know like John Perkins talked about that we're in a deaf economy and we need to move from a deaf economy to a life economy and it's like the process we can go but we can't spend. 50 years like transitioning or 100 years transitioning to it. And like you say about the ruling elite, they're like holding on. They'd rather go down with the ship than to actually get on board and, and you know, be willing to share resources. And um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've been, um, I've been watching some other stuff recently and I don't know, I'd like to get your perspective on, say, um, like Michael Moore's recent documentary, if you've seen it, where he's got, you know, sure. quite, um, you know, he challenges a little bit of the renewable energy um, plans because you actually need fossil fuels to create the them and to potentially manage them. But I know that that documentary in some places was like some of its content was ten years old, and it's, it's not necessarily where we are now. So I'd like to get your perspective on that and and. How you know is is the technology sound enough right now to to make sure that we don't need to turn on the uh, you know the gas and the fossil fuels? Yeah, I mean um, you know so I'm not an expert on renewable energy. Um, I recently hosted a um, webinar, uh, a course which is it's still available for people to, to go through it called "Building Our Regenerative Future," which was taking a more positive approach. Uh, RegenerativeFuture.net. And uh, we had uh, my friend Amanda Ravenhill, who directs the Buckets for Fuller Institute in San Francisco. And she particularly addressed Planet of the Humans, the Michael Moore film. And her argument is that actually um, renewables have become far, far more effective, like, you know, exponentially, 10 times, 30 times more effective than they were a decade ago. And so um, some of the material that that film presented was totally out of balance. And, and, you know, kind of wrong uh, considering, you know, where we are now with renewables. However, having said that, um, I still think the film, you know, it's probably a mistake in some ways, but it is important to realize that we're not going to be able to, to continue the type of industrial technoculture that we've had, you know, over the last 30 years um, if we want to, to salvage the planet from ecological catastrophe. You know, so, so, you know, we would have to agree to a lot of voluntary restrictions. I mean, and, and it's quite interesting in a way because the pandemic and the virus have kind of um, shown that that, you know, can happen during an emergency. Like, you no know, travel, you know, uh, lowered consumption of goods, you know. Um, yeah, we would need kind of to put very, very hard caps on uh, fossil fuel uh, consumption individually and on um, meat consumption and so on. So, yeah, and while we made this rapid transition to renewables as much as possible, but uh, you know, barring more technological breakthroughs, which we can always hope for, it doesn't seem like we're able just to continue. And that, that's been one of the problems with the, the sort of eco-capitalist green movements, um, you know, which has given us the sense of sustainability, that if we just be more sustainable, we continue as we were. 
and, and actually that's radically not the case. We, we, we would have to really shift into something quite different. It's good to get that perspective because I did hear a few people after the documentary got released to sort of, you know, um, challenge a lot of the things that were in there. And I don't know if you've seen one, a documentary called The Need to Grow, um, which was truly fascinating and it had a real focus on um, creating biochar and, and like, you know, how we can really regenerate the soil. It was kind of left me much, much more feeling much more positive, you know, there's things that we can do. I think sometimes you, you read the headlines and individually, individual people can feel like overwhelmed. They can be like, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, it can feel like the system's too big, it's got too much control, but we can actually all take steps, whether it's, like you say, um, being conscious more of where we're going, our footprint, but also in our gardens, getting back to growing food, you know, and, and just getting back, you know, living in community and all these things. So I'd, I'd like to hear maybe some of the things in your book to talk about some of the solutions that individuals can be doing like day to day without feeling totally overwhelmed by, you know, the, you know, the, the, the headlines about extinction. I guess there's two pieces of that. I mean, I mean, the fact is that, yes, people can make individual changes to their consumption, um, but that obviously is not really going to impact uh, the situation. We, we really need systemic change that has to come, come through governments. We, we, we need large-scale mobilization, you know, of, of capital of all sorts, financial, technical, creative, human capital. And um, so it's, it's, it's nice that people, you know, do carbon offset or, you know, grow some of their own food again. You know, you know I mean, building communities is probably one of the, the key things, you know, getting people to come back together into, into community circles. But I don't think we can fool ourselves that on an individual basis, our actions are really going to be of great value. It really has to be. That's why I need something like a, like a social movement, like, like a systemic uh, plan of action. And that, that's really what we were trying to you know, put forth in this course, uh, Building Our Regenerative Future, uh, which is at regenerativefuture.net, if you want to see it, um, is you know, both looking at, yeah, the, the things that we can do individually, composting, you know, rebuilding soil, um, you know, building communities, local currencies, but then recognizing that, you know, there, there also needs to be a, a, a movement of movements, you know, to, towards a, a large-scale uh, civilizational shift in paradigm. You mentioned then about um, current local currencies and stuff. Are you optimistic that cryptocurrency can play a role in, you know, decentralization and, you know, giving power back to the people and, and taking it back from the banks? Does it have a role to play in it all? I, I was very, very optimistic about crypto uh, for quite a while. Then I actually got involved with some people in the crypto scene uh, and became less optimistic. Um, I mean, uh, there is a book uh, called uh, The Politics of uh, Bitcoin, uh, Software as uh, Right-Wing Ideology. And uh, you actually, when you read that book, it, it's by this guy, David Columbia. It's a very short book. You know, it really explains how programmed into Bitcoin is a kind of uh, libertarian philosophy, you know, that really exalts, you know, private individual wealth as like, as like the only value. And, uh, and that, that's unfortunately a lot of the crypto space is trapped in this kind of libertarian uh, mindset and uh, has, has kind of confused uh, aspirations. Now, you know, could blockchain be utilized uh, for a progressive social movement? to do things like distributed uh, decision-making, you know, voting. Um, I mean, you know, could it also be a way that people could allocate resources collectively through something like, you know, distributed autonomous organizations and so on? Yeah, I mean, it, ha it has tremendous potential. 
but um, the, um, the utility of it at the moment has, has sort of gone in the other direction. It's more like crypto libertarianism and um, kind of, um, you know, decentralized finance, you know, I mean, different ways to create new financial products or assets, new forms of speculation. Bitcoin, you know, has turned out not to be a, a unit of exchange. It's kind of like a, it's like digital gold. It's, it's like a virtual stored asset that, has, that only has a value, you know, because of the, way, the fact that it's safe and people have invested it in a certain amount of value. It doesn't really seem to have the type of utility uh, socially as the, the original, you know, value, you know, people who are, who are promoting it claimed. Similarly, Ethereum ran into issues around scalability. Uh, so there really hasn't been, like, Ethereum came in with a lot of, you know, social kind of idealism behind it, but there really hasn't, as far as I've seen, I haven't seen one project that um, seems to fulfill that idealism. Uh, and then you have these other coins, like EOS, you know, which claim to solve the problems of Ethereum through, you know, the, the scalability problem by creating another voting mechanism where you had 21 nodes who could vote. Uh, but then it turns out that a lot of those nodes are now owned by the Chinese. So essentially the Chinese have taken over control of EOS so they can do with what they want. So yeah, I mean, it's an experimental space up to this point. We're not really seeing anything of great social value. Uh, I think some you know, corporations are using blockchains for their supply chains and so on. You know, I, I hope that something magnificent emerges. I've been very curious about democracy OS as one idea, uh, but I, have, I haven't seen uh, such an emergence as of yet. Yeah, I think the the challenge as well for uh, you know the person in the street is it's so volatile as well. You know, you could the fact that it can jump ten, twenty percent in a day or up and down. I think people are so associated with the dollar or the pound and knowing what they can get for it. It kind of feels like there needs to some element of a stable coin would have to be in place for it to kind of work on a day to day. But there are stable coins. I mean, Tether has been a stable coin, but that kind of does away with the value of it anyway, because the whole idea is to have a separate um, currency that's not directly linked to the, uh, you know, the other currencies. Um, in, in the uh, course, uh, Building Our Regenerative Future, you know, we had a section on economy and we looked at a number of ideas like the, uh, we had Tom Greco who talks about local exchange trading systems as an interesting um, tool, Bernard Leotar, He's a very interesting thinker. He, he wrote a book called, um, uh oh, I may, I may be losing his title. This book. He came up with this idea for the Terra, like a negative, uh, uh, a negative interest currency that would be like a global trading currency um, that wouldn't lose value if you tried to hold on to it. So people would want to keep exchanging it rather than hoarding it. Uh, very interesting idea. He wrote a book called The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. Um, anyway, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot to discuss there. But so, so far, I haven't seen anything in, in crypto that's going to do the job. Because as you said there about, you know, the, the type about talking about the end of money, it feels like at some point, like, uh, I don't know if you're aware of the Ubuntu movement from um, Michael Tellinger, who's like from South Africa and, you know, and the Venus Project and, and you know, and stuff like that, where they're talking, eventually we have to move to a society without money. Because when I, I really think about money, like most of us feel enslaved by it. You know, the element of feeling as soon as you're born, you're born into debt in many ways. And as soon as you go to college or university, you're, you know, you're leaving that with a massive, you know, massive, you know, amount of debt around, you, around your neck. And it feels like people can just get like stuck in it. And, you know, the, what, what, what are your thoughts in the transition to eventually um, 
a you know no money society and is the likes of universal income uh, universal basic income is that part of the the solution to so people don't feel so just like like for instance when the pandemic hit so many people first were thinking about food security money are they going to have enough and it kind of feels like to move to this this world that we want this utopian version of the world some much better version of money or no money that we transition to eventually has to be um you know the thing that's the best possible outcome for humanity um yeah i i and i definitely think that we need a different uh, system i mean um you know, uh, money is, you know, capital is ultimately, as the political philosopher Antonio Negri says, a social relation. You know, m- money, you know, is our agreed upon measure of exchange. Uh, you know, when a billionaire walks into a room, everybody reacts physically, you know, with this kind of uh, fear and excitement, you know, but, but the, 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 the billion actually only exists in everybody's mind. It's not like he has like three penises or something, you know. Um, so, so, you know, we, we, we reified these kind of um, social constructions, and that's really what our whole society is based on, right? Like the Federal Reserve or the Central Bank, you know, they're, always, they're always shot in front of these, you know, Greek-looking, you know, Roman-looking buildings with columns and arches. The idea is to give you the sense of, like, stability and authority, you know, but actually it's all in the human mind, right? So, yeah, we could, you know, drop this current monetary system, which has been, you know, very deeply corrupted, by uh, the international criminal cabal that are involved with Trump, the, the, the Russian mafia, mafia and the um, you know, financial gangsters in the US who made money off of the 2008 crash and the subprime you know, mortgages and so on. Um, but, yeah, but the question is, how do you do that? Because if we were not to have an operating system like money, uh, you know, we, would, um, you know, we, we, we would see mass starvation right now. Everybody is kind of, all the supply chains are built on it. So you know, how, how could you create an alternative and, and organize a, a shift to it. I don't know. I don't think that enough work is being done in this regard. Uh, I mean, it may emerge through catastrophe. Um, you know, so we're already seeing like mutual aid societies emerge. Uh, you know, we're seeing, you know, efforts at, at creating barter networks. Um, you know, I, you know, from what I wrote about in How Soon Is Now, the uh, for me the uh, solution is not doing away with having. You know, we we need to have some unit of exchange, and you know, it probably should be something that is hortable to a certain extent, because I don't think we want to just annihilate any difference between people. Uh, but, you know, it, it shouldn't be, you know, somebody shouldn't be allowed to have 130 billion while other people are starving. That's just insane, you know, this situation now. So, you know, the way to do that, it looks like a mixture of um, different, like an ecosystem of ways to exchange value, you know, like a negative trading currency, like Terra that Bernard Leotard writes about, globally, uh, plus local exchange trading systems where manufacturers and service providers get together to, inter- uh, to issue zero interest loans, um, plus um, time banks where people can just share their time or resources, mutual aid networks. Uh, so, you know, it could be that what replaces uh, the current money system is, is a sort of complicated ecosystem that would somehow be made seamless through like a digital platform uh, that people could access really, really easily. But we're, I haven't even seen anybody close to that yet well hopefully like you talk about sometimes it takes crisis for us to make the shift and i think you know what's happened this year is is affected everyone on some level and you can't sort of bury your head in the sand anymore so hopefully i do know from the after the two, 2008 crash a lot of sort of forward-thinking companies were born by then so it would be great to think that some of the stuff you're talking about it means that people aren't just going to go on and think oh it's okay you know we've got time but actually now it's like no we've not got time you know, we, we need to be creating these solutions right now. 
and giving people an option, you know, giving them at least just giving people an option. Some people have, you know, you see it with friends, family, everything, society that there's so kind of, it's a bit like the matrix, the film, you know, they've taken the blue pill and that's just kind of a kind of way of seeing the world. And, you know, I think people are taking the red pill more than ever now from, from what's happened and waking up. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the shifts and the change that can potentially happen. Um, but who knows? Who knows? And I think, like you said before, about, you know, looking at stuff, psychedelics and stuff, and having that feeling that, you know, it's all a bit of an illusion anyway. It's a bit of a game. So, you know, we'll kind of just see how it plays. But just coming back, just I just touched on then psychedelics. I, I'd really like to get more of an insight from you on some of the transformations that you've had in your own life from a particular... Um, journey that you've gone on whether that's ayahuasca peyote you know doing mushrooms or microdosing it's been is it been a connect is it just been taking them over a period of time or has there been particular shifts from from a few events that have you know really opened you up and sent you in a completely different path you know i had yeah i had many really profound transformative psychedelic experiences um that uh, you know profoundly shifted my understanding of the nature of reality and the universe um, and my sense of you know identity and so on um, however you know one thing that I discovered in my personal path is that you know I mean that psychedelics also have a lot of dangers and I feel now the psychedelic movement has, is so focused on the positive and the healing there's such a huge initiative to get psychedelics approved by governments and for mainstream society and so on. And I, I agree with that. I think that's very important. And, um, you know, but, 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 I, but I also would say there are, you know, a lot of dangers to psychedelic use. They can lead to, you know, ego inflation. They can lose, they can lead to distorted perceptions. If you haven't dealt with your own, because, you know, psychedelics are called nonspecific psychic amplifiers. So they amplify all of the contents of your psyche. So if you haven't really done the shadow work and dealt with your own shadow material, you know, which is an ongoing lifelong process, right? Because the shadow always returns to some new form. You may think you've beat it, but then it pops back up again. Um, then you can end up amplifying the shadow material, um, the dark, the, you know, your own dark side. So um, while I had many amazing positive experiences in psychedelics, there were, there were times where I also think they had a, a negative effect uh, on me personally. Um, and, and I think a lot of times what we're seeing now is when people go through an intentional guided process with psychedelics, maybe particularly if they don't have a lot of experience with them, that's when they have like a most tremendous effect. Like whether for, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, they're using MDMA to treat veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars with PTSD, and they're finding like a 60% um, cure rate. Um, and, and the, effect, yeah, the, the, the effect is so pronounced <clears throat> that the FDA <clears throat> excuse me, has fast-tracked MDMA as a potential uh, legal treatment for, um, for PTSD. Similarly, we see you know, use of psilocybin for obsessive-compulsive disorder, ketamine for depression. Uh, the Imperial College in London has been doing like, so much incredible uh, work around all this different stuff. And then also creativity. I mean, going back to the 60s, there were studies in LSD and creativity and now uh, the Imperial College has been doing brain scans of people on high-dose psilocybin and LSD, and you can actually see why they would be such, um, you know, kind of tools for innovation and creative problem solving, because they really light up 
different areas of the brain, like a switchboard. They make connections between areas of the brain that don't normally connect. They light up kind of dormant areas of the brain. And if we think of innovation as really being about, you know, making unusual connections, you know, that we can really almost see it, you know, viscerally mapped out, you know, how, how psychedelics uh, help us do that. Touched on there, I think, um, you know, the trials that are going on with MDMA, it's really, really is, um, you know, it's a real paradigm shift for a lot of people, you know, and, and it's good that there actually, there's a potential for that actually getting seeping through and coming through the mainstream and being used rather than just, you know, psychoactic drugs and stuff just to try and solve the problems. Um, but like you say, yeah, it's a, it's a fine line. And, and, you know, if you're just doing it um, recreational or, you, you know, you're going in and I think Terence McKenna will talk about, you know, the hero's dose and stuff and you can have like psychotic breaks. So you really have to respect the, the plants and you have to do it in a very ceremonial way and, and honor it and, and realize it's coming from the earth and you know and we are part of the earth but um that's interesting to hear your, your your you know your your take on, on that side of stuff another another thing that we're seeing right now also is that uh you know a, a, a sort of sizable subset of the kind of transformational culture kind of neo-shamanic spiritual world have actually been uh, kind of infected by um, like a sort of uh, negative aspects of conspiracy. And some of them are you know, really coming over to the Quanon narrative or the Pizzagate narrative, or they're even supporting this idea that Donald Trump is this, you know, still after three and a half years of carnage and chaos, that he somehow represents um, this kind of warrior, you know, against the, you know, pedophilic, satanic, rulers of the deep state, you know, that he's going to overthrow, you know, something or other. So, and uh, it's very interesting. I mean, a lot of people I know are now trying to understand how um, this kind of uh, conspiracy, it's being called conspirituality, how this kind of conspirituality mindset has emerged from people who were, who seem quite likable and progressive and, and, you know, innovative and experimental, but they've kind of twisted over into this right-wing um, mindset. Um, and some of it has to do with um, kind of a, um, you know, programmatic attack on the part of the far right using artificial intelligence and algorithms to track people's psychological makeup through social networks and then to feed them content that over time pulls them further in a direction. Um, so that's what's been happening right now. And it's quite scary because I actually do think that the U.S. is um, suffering a kind of, you know, authoritarian collapse and the potential actually for um, a kind of, um, you know, fascism. And, and we're actually seeing things where like, um, you know, Trump recently and, and ads for Trump on Facebook, they were using the symbol of an upside down yellow triangle which was a symbol that the Nazis used for political prisoners uh, in the concentration camps. So we're seeing it to, to that extent of what's called dog whistling or tele telegraphing that the, uh, you know, the white supremacist kind of Nazi, you know, kind of under, undercurrent uh, behind the Trump regime is, is signaling directly uh, using, using recognizable symbols like that one. I think that's the only time that Facebook actually stepped in and banned an ad. So um, I'm very troubled by the split this in, in, the, in the progressive psyche between people who have absorbed this kind of conspiracy narrative in a negative sense um, and are not recognizing that um, what's really going on is a far-right takeover. You know, where Trump himself is a kind of um, 
representative of an international gangster elite that includes, you know, Russian oligarchs and so on, and um, that they, they, they really got a, like a plan for a demolition, you know, of democracy and, and, and of, you know, kind of civil society in general. David, I'm, I'm, you know, you see it now on social media. Um, I know like Daniel uh, Schmackenberger was, was speaking about it really interesting on um, Rebel Wisdom podcast. And he was talking about, you know, because people are just trying to hold on to get a sense of what's going on in the world. And for them, when there's loads of uncertainty, they either want to jump to the narrative that uh, you know, there's no conspiracies or they go to the, the pendulum swings far the other way and they're holding on to the, you know, the, the far right, you know, you say the extreme uh, conspiracies that are going on just to get a sense of feeling like they want to get a bit of control and understanding of the world. But, you know, we're seeing it so much now. And like you talk about like social media and the, ag- the algorithms of how, you know, it's playing, it's playing on everyone. But there's such conflict. You know, people aren't able to come together now and have a, a proper conversation. Even someone who's left-wing, right-wing, it seems so polarised. And I think that's going to... You talk about the election that's coming up this year with Trump. Whoever gets in, it feels like there's going to be chaos anyway. Because there's going to be... People are going to be up in arms if Biden gets in or up in arms if Trump gets in. It's like there's no kind of... Like if, if only Bernie Sanders was going to be running and if he'd actually got in, I'd really be quite optimistic. I think a lot of people who would be behind Trump would actually be become behind Bernie Sanders. And it's- Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what's turned out to be the case... I, mean, I just finished a very good book by this woman, Sarah Kenzior, called Hiding in Plain Sight that was on Trump's rise to power. She'd actually predicted it uh, early. Um, um, and I actually, he was kind of, you know, he, he made different phantom runs at the presidency over like, you know, two decades or something. And he had backing him, um, what was his name? Roy Cohn, who was one of Nixon's associates and Roger Stone, uh, who, uh, was the Fox news, uh, right wing kind of apparatchik. So yeah, I mean, and then, and then there's a the deep connection in his you know, intimates to, uh, you know, the Russian oligarchs and the fact that actually Trump's whole enterprise was basically propped up by a, like a criminal, criminal enterprise, like, um, you know, the Trump Towers, uh, were, a lot of the condos were bought with cash. There was like money laundering going on. You know, a lot of them were sold to, you know, members of these Russian oligarch families and so on. So it's not like a fair fight right now and, and it's not like um and i, I think that you know where I, when i when i listen to schmachtenberger and a lot of other analysis they're, they're, it's still they're still muddy I mean, maybe i'm just more of a leftist but i think that they're actually missing what's actually going on which is that this is a, a um a, a, an intentional subversion of democracy that has um, kind of like a 40-year history you could also read the book uh, dark money by jane mayer looks at um, how the Koch brothers assembled in the 60s, a group of, um, you know, American uh, wealthy uh, families and so on. And um, they, didn't, they didn't want um, to see, you know, more social services and more liberty. They didn't want to see better public education, public health in the U.S. So they were like, what are we going to do? Society's moving in this direction. And they actually met in a series of conferences and they crafted a strategy that they then executed over 30 or 40 years that included um, building a whole intellectual infrastructure of uh, think tanks. Uh, they looked at everything that the progressive uh, left wing did, or, you know, quote unquote left, not even that left. So they said, okay, we need social movements that look like the progressive social movement. So we created the Tea, you know, created the tea Party, you know, um, you know, and then they, you know, ended up 
uh, with Simpsons United, you know, kind of subverting uh, the whole, you know, you know, putting putting you know slush money back in the, into the political process and so on, you know. So yeah, this is a long-term a, a agenda, and it's a combination of, you know, of these fossil fuel barons and uh, you know Russian oligarchs and you know probably other people who are part of an international financial you know conspiracy, like the Deutsche Bank, uh, for instance. And so that's really what's going on. And what, what's sad for me is that, you know, a lot of people are just missing the obvious analysis. Like Michael Tellinger, for instance, uh, you, know, you mentioned him as the founder of Ubuntu, but he's actually a frothing wingnut of a, of a right winger who believes that Trump is one of these savior characters and, um, and uh, doesn't think that, you know, you know, thinks that the whole coronavirus is, is, a, is, a, is a conspiracy and nobody should be wearing masks and so on. So, yeah, it's a very creepy time. Uh, people have been uh, unable to identify the enemy properly. And uh, until they start to do that, uh, there's really no hope of getting our shit together. Who knows what's going to happen for the next rest of the year and, you know, the future. We can just kind of just, you know, do our bit, keep, keep having these kind of conversations, keep sharing information. And I, I listened to, um, I haven't actually signed up on it yet, but I was listening to a you talk with uh, a couple of um, I think it's talking about your event that you're doing, do you know, your online course for the past month um, with, um, oh, what's the, there's a guy that lives in the, in Wales, um, the filmmaker. Bruce Perry. Bruce Perry. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was really interesting just hearing about you guys chat for an hour and, and this course that you've got. And it feels like if people can wrap their head around that and wrap their head around, you know, you know the, the series and the course, they're going to have a much better understanding of what's going on and actually how they can play their part in you know in, in, in you know in the shift i mean that was our hope on, on doing it you know we didn't even go into this you know the trump stuff too much the political analysis stuff um but yeah that, that it was more of an effort to say okay like you know what, what are the necessary pieces of, of the uh, alternative paradigm that that need to come together that extend from how you take care of your personal you know health and sovereignty you know all the way to how do we work together to build some type of collective movement community seems to be a you know that we touched on a bit early on but it seems to be a key part of this as building community not just like you know with our generally with our neighbors but actually making the shift because i'm really quite i get really excited by the eco communities that are popping up you've you've got one in wales called lamash you've got the ones um there's uh, ones over in portugal and northern scotland and all these areas and it seems like this more intentional way of living to feel like you, we're going to be a bit more robust, it, you know, when the next pandemic hits, which could be, you know, a five a times five times 10 kind of influence, you know, we're going to need our community. We're going to need, have some closed loop systems where we're able to, you know, to feel like we're not just dependent on, you know, something getting shipped in from China or coming in from Europe or wherever. It seems that feeling that, you know, we've kind of you know we've got more resilience and it seems like resilience seems to be a key thing for me in, in my life and what i'm attempting to build and just get your thoughts maybe just on that yeah i mean um that's definitely um i mean i, I don't yeah i mean um you know a huge piece of the puzzle i mean i have a lot of friends who you know have been moving to sort of exotic locations like new zealand or costa rica and building communities and that, that's already a very privileged um you know, kind of op opportunity to, to, to do that, um, you know, for people to start really, you know, building local communities and bringing ideas around resilience, the regenerative, you know, kind of food supplies and so on. You know, I mean, I mean, it, it may happen in the next five to 10 years 
that we have to get very, very serious about um, you know, where our food and our water and our energy is coming from and how that gets uh, provided to us you know, in the event of things getting very, very you know, weird and, and economic systems changing. You know, I mean, we had, um, as one of the participants in our course, we had a really wonderful young architect from Lebanon who's working on building a sustainable sort of a urban, urban um, forestry in, in, uh, in cities in Lebanon. But he was reporting what's happening in Lebanon and it was really shocking, like total political corruption. People can't take any money out of the banks or just a very, very small amount. They're kind of totally unable to move. You know, I mean, um, you know, we think that that can't happen in the UK or the US, but, you know, who knows at this point? You know, um, I mean, who would have thought that a U.S. passport now only allows you to go to like, you know, Mexico, Turkey and Barbados or something. And that's it on the planet, you know. So, yeah, all bets are off. Things are changing very, very rapidly. And I do think that the course that we did, uh, which, we'll, which we're going to, you know, revamp, but people can still uh, get on it right now. Um, uh, if they can, um, if they message me, um, you know, I, I can give them a discount for it. It's www.regenerativefutures.net. Um, you know, they can send a message to the website and uh, go to future.net and um, yeah, we can, we can get them on, on board for that. I think you talking about that with the course and wrapping it up and it, that seems like a good way to kind of end, end, end it so people can sort of, that's a good point for them to go in and, and get a bit more of understanding of this because, you know, for some people who are just, you know, have been in the system and live in a certain way and suddenly realizing that happiness isn't coming from, you know, the standard job and even saving some money or thinking I'm going to work till I'm 65 and I'll get my pension because, you know, what, what does the future look like? Is there going to be a pension for people in the next 20, 30 years? Um, no, I don't think so. That's, that's, it's just, it's just the, system, the system is done. This system is done. Yeah, so people are going to have to use people power. You know, they're going to have to organize in communities and social movements, both to take care of themselves and to, you know, restructure these governing institutions, whether they're corporations or government, you know, which are often very embedded with each other. I'll be forever an optimist um, with, with what we can kind of do, but it's not going to be, um, I think there's going to be a lot more stuff going to have to break down before we can see, you know, there's going to be green shoots popping up all over the place, but actually if you just turn on the news or you get a sense of what's going on, it can look pretty bleak at times, but there's definitely solutions out there for us. And, you know, us t talking, you know, many other people talking about all these things at the moment gives us some optimism for, you know, making the shift that's what i think anyway um but have you got anything you want to kind of anything last thing you'd like to just say with the listeners and stuff just as a bit of a as a wrap up before we um call it a day um no i think we're good you know i mean um my books uh, breaking up in the head on psychedelic shamanism 2012 and the prophecies of ancient civilizations how they applied our current situation how soon as now offered a systemic um kind of uh, design alternative to temporary civilization, looking at the ecological crisis as a collective right of initiation for humanity. Um, Regenerativefuture.net is a course uh, that I did with about 30 uh, guest faculty. We were considering the different aspects of the new paradigm, from like food, health, economy, uh, community, culture, consciousness. And um, yeah, that's about it. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, yada, yada, if they want to follow. And um, it's great to hang out. Good to meet you. Yeah, that sounds great. And I'll include all the show notes as well so people can check out the links as well to your stuff. But yeah, um, honestly, Daniel, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. And I really admire everything you've been doing and you're helping 
you know, many, many thousands of people with, uh, with your work and stuff and long may it continue. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. I like your loft in the background. It looks like a nice spot. Yeah, it's a good spot. Thank you very much. There we have it, guys. There's today's interview with Daniel Pinchbeck all wrapped up. I'll include all the show notes to our chat on the website so you can check out his books and you can hear about his courses and get a greater sense of, you know, of his work and the people that he's connected with and who he's collaborating with. Yeah. So anyway, guys, um, if you've enjoyed this, please share this episode with a friend. I'd really appreciate it. If you're listening to it or watching it on YouTube, you can subscribe to the channel and get notifications for when new episodes are available. And if you listen to it on Apple, I'd really appreciate it if you give me a review. That would be amazing. And yeah, guys, um, you know, I um, hope you've enjoyed it and uh, have a good day.